everyone. It's good to be back. Uh, I've been gone for a little over a month. Uh, I've been traveling and stuff, so it's good to see everyone's faces. Um, and I guess my first Sunday back, and I'm preaching, so I'm a little bit uh, nervous more than usual. So I do a couple things here. I help lead a Brooklyn Heights small group. And if you're interested in what that is, come talk to me. I also co-lead uh, Queer Communion, which is an LGBTQIA ministry. Also, if you're interested in that, come talk to me. And uh, I occasionally preach, I guess. So uh, this today, we're going to dive into the book of James. And to kind of set us up for that, maybe not quite yet, uh, to sort of set us up for that, I want to talk a bit about labor and work. So I think I asked you guys what was your like worst job experience. Uh, mine happened sort of, it was one of my first jobs. I was part of a research kind of ghostwriting team for a CEO of a kind of corporate consulting firm. And, you know, you're like doing PowerPoints, you're writing articles, what have you. And, I, you know, I learned a lot about the job. I learned about professionalism and like I gained some skills that I still use today. But I also learned a lot about what it means to be a worker. Uh, specifically, I learned that my boss could at any time call me over the weekends, after hours. I would, you know, that I would check my email even when I'm on vacation just to see if there was any emergency I had to respond to. And I wasn't working 24 hours, but it kind of felt like I was working 24 hours because I could be at any point in time asked to work. So you're sort of always on edge. Um, I don't know if some of you had that experience, but it was stressful and took a toll on my friendships, my relationships. And another thing I learned about being a worker was that if, there's this thing called intellectual property that's very interesting. Uh, so if I came up with a really good idea uh, that led to like new business for the company, new revenues, depending on your contract, but for the, for the most part, all I could really hope for was like a nice job um, because everything I created was owned by the company. I don't, I'm not entitled to anything of them. And the other thing it taught me is that being a worker partly meant that my job, response at that, my job responsibilities at that job would sort of triple uh, from the beginning to start. I took on my job, I took on someone else's job who was twice my age, paid twice as much, but my salary would stay like basically about the same. Um, and you know, by the nature of how profit works, the value I created for the company would always be far greater than the value I would receive. And it was d definitely a really difficult time in my life. Um, there are a lot of other kind of toxic manipulative, bullying sort of dynamics at play. But like, looking back now, I think in some ways I had it relatively easy um, because I, I was at least getting paid regularly. Uh, not, I was on time and I was making more than minimum wage. Um, even though it was sort of strange to sort of realize your boss just bought a suit that was the financial equivalent of your whole salary for the year. Uh, you know, just learn factoids like that. Like, okay, that's interesting. Anyhow, but if, if you look from a kind of zoom out perspective, and I think now the slides make sense, um, a, a recent study of low-wage industries in three major U.S. cities found that over a quarter of minimum uh, low-wage workers make less than minimum wage. And in New York City specifically, uh, studies estimate that low-wage workers lose about 15% of their wages, which is kind of two paychecks. And if you're living from paycheck to paycheck, that's really bad. Um, and this occurs specifically more likely to happen in construction industries, laundry, dry cleaning industries, beauty and nail salons, barber shops, grocery stores, et cetera. And wage, this phenomenon is called wage theft. If you're not familiar with it, it takes many different forms. I mean, the most simplest form of it is your boss just doesn't pay you. Um, I have a friend, 
named Victor, who I met through my yoga class in Harbor Fitness. Um, shout out to people who go to Harbor Fitness in Park Slope. Uh, that was just from MFR. Uh, and Victor is, is great. He's always like top of the class. The teacher really likes him. And, was, and he's also really good at Pilates. He's just like all-star fitness guy. And so I was talking one day, and he's like, yeah, I work in construction, et cetera. And I was like, you know, I'm giving the sermon wage stuff. Like, I read something about construction industry practices. Have you ever, like, just not been paid? And he's like, yeah, actually. Um, it happened 10 years ago. I, my English, I didn't really speak English. I didn't really have work documents. But I worked for a month, like, 60 hours a week in, like, pretty brutal weather conditions. And I just wasn't paid um, for what happened. And Victor's story is actually uh, quite common for a lot of particularly um, non-English speakers or people who don't have proper work documentation. The other way wage theft occurs is failure to pay overtime. Or have your waitress and, or your car washer and your tips are withheld. Or you're classified as an independent contractor so your company doesn't have to pay you benefits, which happens a lot. Um, and in overtime specifically, in New York actually, not, I, when I learned this, I was like, oh wow, I should have been paid overtime. If you work more than 40 hours, you actually are owed 1.5 times more your usual hourly rate. And there was a recent survey that showed that pretty much Every industry from like Wall Street to nail salons had overtime violations, but the highest was in like personal repair services, social services, child daycare centers, and schools. And I know a lot of a lot of us here work in schools and instead of childcare. And I think some of you might be saying, you know, I, I do work kind of crazy hours, but I, I love my job. I really care for the people I work for. And I totally get it. My mom's a nanny; she really loves her job. But I think one of the tricks I would say of capitalism is to say. Well, if you love your work, then it's not really work. It's just your passion, which is good. But that mindset, in some ways, just kind of encourages and enables organizations, and especially a lot of nonprofits, to sort of keep asking for more and more work from you and to keep doing it for free. And at the end of the day, you just can't pay bills with passion. So as maybe some of you know. Um, so who suffers like the most in the system? Obviously, like we all have like different gradations of suffering. I had my like white collar job, and, uh, and Victor's like working instructions. But the people who tend to suffer the most statistically are foreign, uh, undocumented women specifically. So there was a survey that came out that asked workers whether they had suffered wage theft the past week. So 40% of unauthorized immigrant women in the study said yes, compared to 24% of authorized immigrant women compared to 13% of US-born women, so no documentation trickies, tricks, and 10% of US-born men. And if you're wondering, if you're undocumented, you're actually still owed wages. There are still laws that definitely apply to you and protect you. And so some of you might be wondering, well, you know, why can't you just complain to HR? Uh, HR. Um, so 23% of the respondents in the study said that it did make a complaint. It was unsafe working conditions. They were not being paid. and of the 23%, 42% said that their employees retaliated in some way. Either they cut the hours, they were fired, they're harassed, or given more work, um, sort of you name it. So it's, it's no wonder that 70, uh, 77% of people choose to stay silent. But of course, some people still choose to speak out. Um, this is a photo of Epifania Hinchez. I was I'm reporting this article on home health attendance. Uh, in, uh, in Manhattan, and basically Epiphanish was telling me she's from the Dominican Republic, uh, she came here in the 40s, and she's been working as a home health attendant for the past 17 years. And it's a pretty tough job. I mean, she's assigned to Medicaid qualified patients, and it's like one attendant per patient. You sort of have to 
A lot of them have suffered dementia and bedridden. They can weigh 200 to 300 pounds. Her last patient was about 300 pounds. She had to carry the body from the bed to the bathroom, bathe, clean, wash, like poop, pee from the sheets, uh, feed them, cook for them, etc. And when she was talking to me, she was showing me her wrist. It's like, I have suffered so much nerve damage and have had surgery because of my job. Um, and she was not only, is it a really physically demanding job, and it's only one person instead of sort of staffing ratio of two to one, uh, she was working 24-hour shifts because they were kind of acquired 24-hour care. They would wake up multiple times a night, ask for help. Um, and so she got very little sleep. I bring this up because she was only paid about 13 hours of a 24-hour shift. Um, she, and that, that's happened to her consistently for the past 17 years. And so I met her because of reporting on this organization uh, campaign called Anti-Women Campaign that's organizing home health attendants to demand for the full hours of full wages. And it's paid through Medicaid, so the government argues we just don't have enough money, you're supposed to sleep, if they cry out for help, just ignore them, I'll call 911, that's kind of like the, of course, I'm sure calling 911 would be super cheap as well for our social system. Uh, and she was talking to me, I was like, are you religious? She said, actually, I'm Catholic. Uh, my faith is really important to me. I go to Christ the King Church in Bronx. And she says, you know, my faith obligates me to treat these patients, these elderly, as if they're part of my own family. I really see my work as doing God's work. But I do think God is angry at how we have been treated like slaves. And I was like, do you, do you have support in your church? Like, do people know? You the priest, the father? She's like, oh, no one knows. I don't talk to the father about what I go through. And it made me sad. And when I was listening to Epiphania and my friend Victor, and I was thinking about my own job experience, I remembered that when I was going through that job, the only books, the only parts of the Bible I could really read at the time were the Psalms. So Psalms are full of this sort of rage against the machine uh, type <laughs> sentiment. Like Psalm 10, for instance, says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked persecute the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. Rise up, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why do the wicked renounce God and say in their hearts, you will not call us to account? But you do see, indeed, you note trouble and grief that you may take it into your own hands. O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed, so that those from earth may strike terror no more. I remember reading that, and that last line really stuck out to me. Like, those from Earth would strike terror no more. Because I think to be in an environment where you can't really control what happens to you, there's little, like, solution of, uh, like, out you have, it feels a lot like terror um, to, to sort of lose control and to be at sort of the mercy of someone else. And this is the Bible part of the sermon. Um, you know... The Bible does have a complicated relationship to wealth and money. It's not straightforward. Like half the Bible is like, if you do well, you can have a lot of land and cows and kids and you'd be really wealthy. But I would say that from like reading from the Torah to the prophets to the New Testament, the Bible is actually pretty consistent in how it talks about work, how workers should be treated. So let's start from the Torah. Like beginning Deuteronomy 24, 14, 15 cites, um, you shall not withhold the wages of poor and needy laborers, whether they are Israelites or aliens, who reside in your land in one of your towns. You shall pay them their wages daily before sunset because they are poor and their livelihood depends on them. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you would incur guilt. So, you know, two interesting things here. The law specifies you ought to treat uh, the Israelites, same as a foreigner, the documented, same as undocumented, the stranger, family member, same. 
And the second thing that's interesting is that it says you have to pay them daily, not weekly or monthly, which is interesting. Why? Um, and I think the text kind of tells us. It says because they are poor, their workers are poor, and their livelihood depends on them. So presumably they're sort of living day to day, and they can go a day without their wages. And so the law here is basically saying you should distribute wages according to the needs of the workers, not necessarily the needs of, you, of the employers or the bosses. Um, the prophets continue this kind of theme. So there's so many verses. It really is like, you can Google like 20 verses. I, I picked just like a five. So Jeremiah 22, 13, which I think could have been written about some of today's practices in the construction industry, says, woe to him who built his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors work for nothing and does not give them their wages. Isaiah 58 is even harsher. So the, the, the first sentence is from the point of view of the Israelites. Um, why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Addressing God. And sort of God is responding through Isaiah. Luke, you serve your own interests on your fasting, and you oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Is not this the fast that I choose? To lose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin? So once again, that last line is really interesting to me, not to hide yourself from your own kin. It seems to me that the message in this passage is saying that the naked, the poor, the hungry, the homeless, etc., they are your and our brothers and sisters and siblings. And by turning away from them, by averting our gaze from them, we, are not, we fail to recognize not just their humanity, but ours. And I think maybe the most powerful words, at least in my uh, review, come from the book of James, the New Testament, a book that some believe was authored by James, brother of Jesus, but it's disputed a little bit. So it begins, James calls himself, I'm the servant of the Lord. Uh, you can kind of ignore the verses for now. We'll get there later. Um, uh, I'm serving the Lord, and I was addressed to the 12 tribes in the diaspora of Israel. So because of these uh, scholars think that it was addressed to shortly after the persecution of Stephen in the book of Acts, and everyone kind of had to flee from Jerusalem, and I was going back, and people were going through some hard, hard times. He's writing his letter to like, you know, give him some encouragement. And so it, it starts off with that pretty famous passage. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect. So that, uh, do I have that one up here? No. Okay. I'll let the testing of faith produce endurance and let endurance have its full effect. So that you may uh, become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So I remember when I was taught this verse, I thought the trials were like, you know, testing so that I don't show up to church on time, I'm not reading the Bible. Like, these are the tests and trials that I have to endure. Um, I grew up as a pastor's kid. But if you read a little bit further, I think James gives you a clue as to what these trials were. So uh, it's not up here, so just, I guess, focus on what I say. Uh, he says, let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. The sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. So it seems pretty likely that the trials and temptations they were talking through were actually economic, um, that they were suffering under the oppression of the rich and the powerful. And 
James doesn't, he's, he's encouraging for sure, but he's also like calling out this diaspora in many ways. He's saying, you know, you guys are actually showing favoritism to the rich over the poor. That's chapter two. Chapter three, he says like, you need to watch and have control over your tongues because your tongues can be very powerful and like just basically don't gossip so much and try not to curse people. Um, and chapter four is about like having control over your internal cravings so you're not coveting and you're not murdering and stuff like that. So he doesn't like give them off the, let them off the hook. But then in chapter five, he pivots and he addresses uh, businessmen, uh, businesswoman. He says, did I have this verse up? Not yet, okay, just ignore that for now. Uh, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Right after that, he says, and this is the verse up top, Come now, you rich people. Weep and well for the miseries that are coming to you. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So it's a pretty straightforward passage in many ways, but there are two things I want to call out. There's an echo of Deuteronomy 24 here, specifically, um, if you remember what I talked about, about not to hold back the wages, lest the cries of the labor reach the ear of the Lord of hosts. So there's the echo. And there's the other echo, which I uh, put up here, which is Genesis 4, where, you know, Cain, um, who's a son of Adam and Eve, kills Abel, his brother, out of jealousy. And God's like, where, are you at? where is Abel? And Cain's like, I don't know. I'm my brother's keeper. And God says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So... Maybe reading too much into it, but I think there's a little bit of a parallel here struck between the cries of the laborers who work the ground and whose cries are being heard by the Lord and the cries of uh, Abel's blood crying out for the ground to God. And James just doesn't stop. He keeps going. He says, uh, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. So that's, I think, the last paragraph there. And when I was reading this passage, I was like, okay, pretty straightforward story. Oh, what, the righteous one. There's a switch here from plural to singular. It's been, you know, rich and poor, laborers, workers, and who is this righteous one? So most commentators point to the Book of Wisdom, chapter 2, verse 10 to 20. Um, The full name is The Wisdom of Solomon. It's a book that's found in the Catholic uh, Bible. It was taken out by the Protestants because they didn't believe it should be in there because it was only in the Greek translation, not in the Hebrew version. Um, it's a very long story, but it's inter- worth investigating. Uh, but um, I'm going to show you the passage in a minute, but just it, it's sort of the point of view that the narrative adopts is the point of view of those who are sort of rich and powerful and who are like, you know, YOLO, we're only here as once. We only live once. Let's just like do what we want. So uh, I think the verse then goes, um, sorry, I font is small, but I'll just read it out. Uh, let us oppress the righteous poor man. Let us not spare the widow or regard the gray hairs of the age, let, but let our might be our law of right. For what is weak proves itself to be useless. Let us lie in wait for the righteous man, because he's inconvenient to us and opposes our actions. He reproaches us for sins against the law and accuses us of sins against our training. He professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. He came to us uh, a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange. We are considered by him as something base. He avoids our ways as unclean. 
He calls the last end of the righteous happy and boasts that God is his father. Let us see if his words are true. Let us test what will happen at the end of his life. For if the righteous man is God's child, he will help him and will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. So let us test him with insult and torture so that we may find out how gentle he is and make a trial of his forbearance. Let us condemn him to a shameful death. And it goes on a little bit longer. It was a kind of a powerful passage. You can really feel like the irritation and the annoyance of the rich by this guy who thinks he's all that, who thinks he's like he's judging them, and who dares to call himself the child of God. And as you can probably guess, the early church, church father saw this passage as a prophecy of Jesus. Of Jesus, a worker or carpenter who was righteous, who called the powerful to account, who claimed his identity as a child of God, of God as his father, and of Jesus' torture and death and his gentleness through it all. So when James is writing, you have murdered and condemned the righteous one who does not resist you. He's probably referring to the book of wisdom. He's probably thinking of Jesus as well. Of Jesus, not just Jesus who's who's on the side of those who are oppressed, but Jesus who's actually been oppressed, who has been killed. And Jesus who lives in the lives and the bodies of workers and laborers, of, of all of us, of the rich and the powerful as well. Because as Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of those, you do to me. And maybe he meant it literally. And I think Jesus shows us to how to live in a, in a world in which money, in some ways, controls almost everything. He shows us you know, what it means to live a righteous life, to hold those in power accountable, and to walk in a simple and yet very audacious knowledge that you are a child of God. That even though it feels like the weight of the world is on your shoulders, you are beloved and you are divine. And that really annoys people. Uh, when you walk into work and you think you're divine. Uh, <laughs> people are like, way to get that attitude. I went to church. Um, and after this passage about the rich, James kind of pivots and goes and addresses like the diaspora. He says, be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. See the judge is standing at the door. So sometimes this passage can be interpreted as, Life really sucks. It's probably not going to get better. Just hold out. There's a judge at the end. He'll like hold people to account. And that honestly gives me great relief. <laughs> like, there are a lot of people that get away with a lot. And I just, like, it is kind of nice to feel like there will be a judge. I'm not sure if it, that really happens, but it, it gives me a lot of emotional relief. But James, I think, anticipates this. Because two chapters before, he writes, what good is it, my siblings? Mm, oh, yeah, there it is. If, if you say you have faith but do not have works, can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lack daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, it has no works, is dead. So I think, yes, as Christians, people follow Jesus, we are called to have faith that one day there will be shalom, there's not going to be terror, there's no injustice, there's going to be peace. But I think we're also called to manifest this with faith in really concrete and material ways to sort of save lives. And it's, you know, it's a simple stuff. Like one way to read this passage is, let's say someone at church in your small group is like, you know, I'm really stressed about moving apartments, can you pray for me? You could definitely like pray for them, but you could also like offer to help move if you can. Or if someone's like, oh, I just lost my job, I have a big bill coming up, I'm really stressed, can you pray for my anxiety? You can also just like Venmo them $20 or like, and, and pray for them, very important. But the, the, like, the, like thoughts and prayers, I think James is saying thoughts and prayers here are not enough. And 
Or maybe right now you feel, you're feeling underpaid, you're exploited at work, or maybe someone in your workplace is. So maybe like talk to your coworkers and figure out how to collectively work together to ask for like fairer worker condi working conditions and wages because it's greed to strength in numbers. Or maybe you know, you're doing pretty good, you're happy with your work, whatnot. There are different organizations you can get involved with. Um, there's Make the Road, uh, a Latinx immigrant worker advocacy group that works with uh, people like my friend Victor. Um, and then there's also, you can get involved with the Anti-Iowa Women campaign, which is organized by the Chinese Staff Workers Association and the National Mobilization Against Sweatshops in the Chinatown on the Lower East Side. So this is a recent rally they did. Um, and you can, right now, it's a state issue. So given that there's a governor's race, it's sort of a timely campaign. So they're meant, I'm giving you like both individual, sort of larger political things, span of actions. You come up with whatever you think is, makes sense. Um, but I want to go back to James real quick to kind of wrap things up. One of his most famous lines is, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And when I read this, I actually misread it. I thought, you know, I, th I thought typically you think like the faith is the spirit and like the works of the body because you know, it's like you're manifesting what is internal to you in, in external ways. Um, and it's, it's like, you know, spirit is number one, uh, faith is number one, works are number two, spirit is, you know, Whatever, you get the point. But James kind of flips this hierarchy. He says, actually, your works are the spirit, and your faith is your body. Because the body without the spirit is dead, so the faith without works is dead. So my prayer for our church is that we are not just known as people of faith, but people of living faith, not dead faith. A faith that isn't content with just well wishes and thoughts and prayers, but a faith that truly comes alive in word and in deed and in flesh, because that is the God we believe in who became flesh and lived and dwelt among us. Um, I'll pray to wrap this up. I think that was actually my prayer. Um, God, I, I pray that, yeah, we, we would take courage in your solidarity with us. We would take courage in how you lived your life as someone who was audacious enough to call himself a child of God, to call you father, that that would be the spirit by which we hold on to in times in which we do feel oppressed and we do feel beaten down. And I pray that we manifest the spirit in really concrete ways in serving our neighbors, people in our church, but also with a beyond. Um, that we may become known as people of living faith. Amen.